Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. I think uh, many of you have expressed that uh, the journey that we've been on has been interesting and sometimes it's been a little scary. Uh, It's been eerie at points, but uh, nonetheless, we've seen these tremendous truths that Daniel has given us, and not truths that are beyond, at points, scientific scrutiny. And I think in an age of science, sometimes we need to be encouraged in that regard. But, you know, we've witnessed firsthand together on the pages of the Bible prophecies that were written thousands of years ago and yet foretold a time, for instance, when Israel would once again be a nation. Now, when Daniel wrote these words in the 6th century B.C., 600 years before Christ, there was no nation Israel. Israel had been destroyed, carried off into captivity into Babylon. Daniel was one of those captives. And then a number of years later, they were restored uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah to their nation. They were a nation for a period of time. Then they were destroyed again by the Romans under Titus and his legions. And then for 2,000 years, were not a nation again, dispersed all over the world. And yet, in our time, We have had this unique privilege of seeing these prophecies come to fulfillment before our very eyes as as Israel became a nation again in 1948. You know, Daniel, when he talks about his prophecies, he assumes the Jews are in Jerusalem. And yet, when he wrote in his day, he was the last citizen of Jerusalem when the Jews had outright claim to that city in 606 B.C. Yet... Babylon came in, destroyed the city under Nebuchadnezzar, took the people and all the, the, uh, the intellectuals and artists and, and uh, workers into Babylon for a 70-year captivity. And from that time on, Israel never possessed the city of Jerusalem without being oppressed by a foreign power. That is, until our day. Daniel speaks of the nation possessing the city freely, and yet they haven't done that for 2,600 years. Until our day, 1967, when the Jews once again possessed the city of Jerusalem. And Daniel has assumed in his prophecies that Israel would have a temple. Now, he had a temple. He was part and parcel to a temple in in his youth. And yet, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple, they didn't have a temple. When he wrote these prophecies, they had no temple. A few hundred years later, they finally regained their temple and temple worship again. They had a second temple. But then that temple was destroyed. And yet he assumes that one day they will have a temple again. And we have the privilege in our day of witnessing the fact that plans are underway, even now, even as I speak, for the nation of Israel to construct a third temple. The temple that is mentioned in the prophecies of Daniel. You know, in addition to that, Daniel has outlined for us some panorama of world history. If you remember in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel kind of laid forth for us the time clock from which God would give specific attention in dealing with the nation of Israel. That time clock was set aside as 77s or 70 weeks. And last week we kind of unfolded that as being a 490 year period. Daniel also outlined in Daniel chapter 2 that there would be four great Gentile world empires. And, and many of those were far in the distance from the time in which he wrote. 
But those empires would be the nation of Babylon, the empire of the Medo-Persians, then Greece, and then finally the empire of Rome. But Daniel didn't stop there. He even went to a time that is still yet future to us. And he mentioned a time in which old Rome now disseminated into nation states that we know of as France and Italy and Portugal and places like that would one day revive and come back together again in a confederation of nations which would create a new world empire. It might not be known as New Rome, but it will be brought together out of the same soil of which birthed the first Roman Empire. Then Daniel told us that this empire in time will be handed over to a vicious dictator. And that vicious dictator was spelled out in pretty graphic detail for us in Daniel chapter 7. He's going to be one who will be a master of magnetic appeal. He'll be the kind of person that many people, maybe even you and I here today, wish that we had that would bring the world into order. And by his cunning, by his charisma, by his wisdom and by his power, he will be able to do that for a season. And people will adore him. In fact, in time, people will be asked to worship him. Behind the scenes, though, he is a far different character. He's a character of brutality. If you'll remember in Daniel chapter 7, he gets that power, he consolidates that power by pulling off a coup, overthrowing three of the kingdoms within this confederation. He's a man of exploitation and manipulation. He's one who persecutes those who don't agree with his point of view. And in time, he becomes a murderer, especially of the nation of Israel and for those who believe in general differently from himself. This despicable world ruler, however, is not the only sinister personality that's related to the end of human history. This morning, I want to look at a second of such personalities. Two that are described all throughout the Scripture, and we'll look in depth at this second personality this morning. He's called by many things. He's called the one who makes desolate. He's called the little horn. Uh, he's called the lawless one. But most of you all have known him, and maybe not in detail like I'll describe today, but you've known him as Antichrist. And this morning, we're going to look at that personality called Antichrist. And his portrait is painted for us in Daniel chapter 8. So let's look there, and we're going to work our way through this chapter and see some of the insights that this prophet in the 6th century B.C. gives us concerning this second sinister character. Now remember last week in Daniel chapter 9, we're actually going backwards, but in Daniel chapter 9, we were in the first reign of a Persian king, Daniel having gone through a change of empires, the Babylonian Empire becoming the Persian Empire. Now we're going to go back in time to right at the end of the Babylonian Empire when the last king, Belshazzar, is reigning. And in this last season of Babylon's life, Daniel has a vision. And the vision is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 8. Let's read it. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about that while I was looking, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the province of Elam. Somehow he gets transported in this vision to Susa. Now, 
Susa, for you all, is modern-day Iran. It's the place where the Persian Empire had its capital. And I looked at the vision, and I was, I was myself was besides the Uli Canal. And then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, in other words, very fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. The ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground. He trampled on him. There was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Well, that's the first part of the vision. We'll go on and read the second part in just a moment. But I want you to know in this first part of the vision, Daniel introduces us in this vision to these two beasts, the goat and the ram. And we know that these two beasts represent two world empires that are still future to Daniel. Now, unlike many parts of the book of Daniel where we have to do a lot of additional research, in this particular first part of the vision, the vision is interpreted specifically by a messenger who comes to Daniel later on and tells him what these two beasts stand for. So if you'll turn over and look at verses 20 and 21, you'll see what these two beasts represent. Look at verse 20. It says, The ram, Daniel, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Now that's quite clear, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to guess at who the elements are here in this passage. There are these two empires, and if you are a student of history or know anything about uh, the history of these great world kingdoms, you will know that the description that Daniel gives of these two empires is very exact. In fact, as you can read about the kingdom of Media and Persia that conquered Babylon, it was really first... Uh, aroused, this first kingdom was aroused by the Medes, who were a smaller kingdom, and then they united in partnership with Persia and became this huge, powerful military force. That's what is represented by one horn being shorter than the other. The Persians were far and away much stronger than the Medes, but they formed this great world empire, and they did just as Daniel declares they went north, west, and south in expanding their great world empire. And Babylon was one of the significant victims of their expansion. But in time, another empire arose, the one that's mentioned in verse 21, the Grecian Empire, and it soon challenged the mighty armies of Artaxerxes and the Persian Empire, and it was led by a young commander by the name of Alexander the Great. 
And certainly he is represented as the first king, this great horn, this great conspicuous horn that's between the uh, eyes of this uh, he-goat that then attacks the ram. And Alexander did just that. Some of you will remember, by the way, in a previous message that I gave, that as Alexander rushed from Greece over to Persia, he came through Palestine, and he was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And as he set up his siege works, if you'll remember, it was the high priest who, in all reverence and humility, walked out on the battlefield carrying the book of Daniel and opened to Daniel chapter 8. And he showed Alexander the words and the prophecies concerning him. And Alexander was so impressed that these prophecies predicted a victory over the Persians that he spared the city of Jerusalem. Now that's recorded, not in the Bible, but it's recorded in the historian Josephus' works. And you can read them yourselves in the library. But anyway, he goes on and he engages the Persians. And in blitzkrieg-like fashion, in just a series of engagements, though he is highly outnumbered by the Persian forces, Alexander the Great does, in fact, conquer and defeat the Medo-Persian Empire. Then he goes on to conquer almost the whole known world all the way to India. Finally, his troops get a little weary and they almost revolt on him because they're so far from home. So he pulls back to the city of Babylon, of all places, and throws a big party for his generals. And in the midst of that party, Alexander overindulges in wines, becomes quite drunk and sick. And in his illness... He contracts a fever, and the fever becomes quite severe to the place that it becomes apparent that at age 33, Alexander's not going to make it. So his generals gather around him, and they know they're about to lose their great commander-in-chief, the Big Horn. And they ask him in his dying breath, who will you leave the kingdom to? And Alexander, in a last breath, says, to the strongest. And he dies. Well, without him appointing a successor, as you might imagine, there's a power struggle that ensues. And in that power struggle, and history will attest to this fact, four of his generals break his empire into four territories or kingdoms, just like Daniel prophesied in the 6th century B.C. Now, you might be asking why I mention all this and why the backdrop before we move into this discussion of the Antichrist. And the reason this is given as a backdrop before this discussion of Antichrist is because this breaking of the kingdom into these four parts, it is out of one of those parts, one of those territories that Antichrist arises. It's his place of origin. Now with that said, let's go back to the second half of the vision in verse 9. And then some of what I've already said will become a little clearer. Verse 9. It says, and out of one of them, in other words, out of one of these four territories, out of one of these four kingdoms, there came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land, that is, towards Israel. Israel is called the beautiful land. Now, who is this little horn? And who does he represent? Well, theologians have debated that and discussed that for really centuries. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the rest. I'm going to tell you what a favorite interpretation is and why many are inclined to believe that this is who this little horn represents. So let me just read the rest of the verses or the rest of the vision down to verse 14. 
This little horn grew up to the host of heaven, verse 10, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's a clear reference to God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, that is in the temple, and then the place of the sanctuary was torn down. And on account of transgression, the host which was given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? Now that phrase, transgression causes horror, is literally the abomination of desolation. How long will there be this abomination of desolation, this desecration of the temple and its holy place, in other words? And the answer is in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. You know, if you look back in history and you take this statement, this outline here in verses 9 through 14, and say, is there anyone that looks to fulfill that, a man will immediately arise and come to mind. And that man is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now let me go back and tell you why he comes to mind. Remember Alexander's empire broke into those four parts? Two of the parts are these parts. One was in the area of Syria and Turkey. That was one of the areas that was cordoned off by one of the generals, and he called it his kingdom. It later became known as the Seleucid dynasty or empire. Another of those kingdoms or territories was down in Egypt. And a general took it. And over a period of time, that was known as the Ptolemaean Empire. And those two generals, those two kingdoms, as they began to settle in, over time, began to be at odds with one another, wanted to take control of one another, power hungry towards one another. Now, anybody who knows geography, if you think about Syria to the north and Egypt to the south, and they're going to, they want to go to war with one another, What's the battlefield? Okay, isn't it Israel? And that's exactly what it was. And for years and years and years, these two kingdoms went back and forth across Israel, raping the land and the people as it warred and tried to get the advantage on the other. That brings us to Antiochus. The eighth king in the Seleucid dynasty, that's up in Syria, was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's had an impact even on Scripture. Because when you read your New Testament and you read about Jesus going to the city of Antioch or one of the apostles going to Antioch, Antioch was named for Antiochus Epiphanes. In one of the wars with Egypt, this Syrian king came down across Israel and conquered the city of Jerusalem. Came into Jerusalem high-handed, arrogant, proud, offended the Jews and in particular the priests. And they began to resist him. And he became so enraged with the people that he decided to do the unspeakable, that which was recorded here in verse 11. You know, verse 11 says that he would magnify himself to the commander of hosts, that he would remove the regular sacrifice, and that he would desecrate the holy place. And you know, that's exactly what Antiochus did. That's exactly what he did. He got so mad at the Jews... And he knew that their heartbeat was their religion. So he himself 
marched in to the Holy of Holies. Now you remember the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Well, Antiochus entered the Holy of Holies carrying a squealing pig. And he slit its throat. And he poured blood all over the sacred altar. And all over the holy place to desecrate it. Then he kicked over the altar and he erected a pagan altar and claimed to be divine. And then as he walked out, he had his men construct a statue of Jupiter, his God, and force the Jews to acknowledge Jupiter as God. Of course, many Jews didn't. Many Jews resisted. A revolution ensued. There was a lot of bloodshed. And that bloodshed happened to last for 1,150 days. That's another way of saying 2,300 mornings and evenings. You take 2,300 mornings and evenings, divide it by two, you come up with 1,150 days. And that's exactly how long it was until a young Jew and his sons by the name of Judas Maccabeus came in and led a revolution to retake the city of Jerusalem. And he did. And he cleansed the temple and he restored the sacrificial system, throwing out Antiochus. Now he happened to do that on December the 25th 164 B.C. And that's celebrated even today. It'll be celebrated this Christmas by those who practice the Jewish faith when they say to one another, Happy Hanukkah. You know what Hanukkah means? It means dedication. Happy dedication. It's a reminder of the time when they rededicated their temple to its holy sacrifices. Well, the question is now, is Antiochus the fulfillment of Daniel 8, 9 through 14? There have been many people who have felt that way and, and they feel that way, not without uh, a lot of good evidence that I just gave you. I personally do not feel that Antiochus is the ultimate fulfillment of this particular passage. And I do so for two reasons. The first reason is found in verses 15 through 19. Let me just read those and I'll point out my reason as I move through the passage. Here's the vision that's been given to Daniel. And now it came about that when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Here's the messenger. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and he said, Gabriel. Now we've been talking about Gabriel in the past, this messenger from God. Give this man an understanding of the vision. And so he came near to where I was standing and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Well, though Antiochus fits very well this particular section of Scripture, Antiochus was not at the time of the end. But let's go on. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep and my face with my face to the ground. But he touched me and he made me stand upright and he said to me, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now you know in Scripture when you say things several times over, it's for emphasis. And what is emphasized about this vision is this vision is not in history, this vision is at the end of history. So, so that's why I think it doesn't fully pertain to Antiochus. Now I have someone else who gives me good reason to believe that. And that's Jesus Himself. 
You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, as he's speaking to his disciples, he started talking about this coming abomination of desolation. And Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then flee to the mountains because all hell is going to break loose, is what he's saying to his disciples. Now when Jesus said that, he said that 165 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. And Jesus wasn't saying about his time. He himself, if you read Matthew 24, was looking forward to the end of time when he said it. And I think those are two good reasons why this is not fully Antiochus. On the other hand, Antiochus does fit kind of a, a style of prophetic literature. Let me say this. Antiochus foreshadows in part and in kind a greater abomination that is to come in human history. Now that's not a single precedent. That's a common precedent in Scripture. If you read the life of Joseph, or if you read the, read the life of David, or of Jonah, men like that, what you read into their life, if you read, as you read their life, is they are, in a sense, foreshadowing or playing out in part the life of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the Bible such an incredible book. That these men in times past could actually play out roles that would be fulfilled in even a greater extent in Jesus Christ. For instance, it was David who said in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do those words sound familiar? You don't normally attribute those words to David, do you? But David spoke those words as a messianic prophecy concerning his own life. But then as a type of Christ, those words were fulfilled to even a greater extent in the life of Christ when he hung on a cross and said the exact same thing. Or how about Jonah? You know, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, and yet, in a sense, he portrayed or he foreshadowed the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus said that himself. The Jews asked for a sign, and he said, no other sign will be given to you other than Jonah. Because as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. Those are types of a greater antitype. That's a foreshadowing, a part of that which when it comes will be the full expression of the prophecy. Now, Antiochus is exactly the same way. Antiochus foreshadows to a degree or in part a greater, more sinister figure who will unleash a greater and more flagrant terror on the nation of Israel. Theologians call that the law of double reference. Let me just read you the law of double reference out of a theologian's book, Dwight Pentecost. He said, it means two events widely separated as to time of their fulfillment, and yet they may be brought together into the scope of one prophecy. Two events widely separated, and yet they can in themselves represent one prophecy. By bringing two widely separated events into one prophecy, both are fulfilled. In many Old Testament prophecies, it was the purpose of God to give a near and far view so that the fulfillment of one should be the assurance of the fulfillment of the other. Well, when you look at the law, I mean the life and the terror of Antiochus, in a sense, he is the near view of a greater terror. I'm sure no Jew would want to know, and looking at Antiochus, that he was only part 
of something that was going to be even a fuller expression of horror. And yet Antiochus is the near view. Antichrist is the full view of one prophecy found here in Daniel chapter 8. Now with that said, let's go on and take a close look at this sinister personality, starting in verse 23. Because in verse 23, this messenger begins to talk about this little horn. Remember the little conspicuous horn that rose up? It says in verse 23, And in the latter period of their rule, these four kingdoms, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now that king that's arising is, the, is in reference to the horn in verse 9 that rises up. And I had some person last week, and maybe some of you are asking this qu same question, because on the surface, it seems like the horn of chapter 8 is the horn of chapter 7. Have any of you asked that question? Are those the same two? I mean, they're both these little horns. They both rise up, and they both seem powerful. Are they the same horn? Well, my answer is no. I do not think that they are the same horn. I'll tell you why. The horn of Daniel chapter 7, it arises out of this out of the fourth world empire, that is the Roman Empire. Remember how it rose up out of Rome, the fourth one? And yet this horn here in Daniel 8, in a far different way, rises out of the Grecian Empire. The horn of Daniel 7 just arises comfortably out of the beast that's given there. But this horn doesn't arise out of any general beast, but it arises out of one of the horns that came out of that big horn, Alexander the Great. That seems totally different in effect. The horn of Daniel chapter 7 is found in the Gentile section of Daniel. Remember the Gentile section of Daniel? Daniel chapter 2 through 7? If you were reading Daniel in an English translation, you would read Daniel chapters 2 through 7 in English because it was written to the world, to Gentiles like you, most of you and me. A few Jews here, but for most of us. Because it was written about Gentile world history. But when you turned the page and started reading Daniel chapter 8, it wouldn't be written in English anymore. It would be written in Hebrew. Because Daniel chapter 8 through 12 is not written to Gentile world history. It's written specifically to Jewish history, and in particular the last seven years of Jewish history. And I believe that this little horn is not focused on Gentile world history, but he is focused specifically in relationship to the nation of Israel. And then I could go on and just simply say that the description of each horn and its purpose and in its effect is different. And so I believe that the horn of Daniel chapter 7, as we said a number of weeks ago, is this great charismatic world ruler who will consolidate that empire that we talked about. Whereas the ruler or the horn of Daniel chapter 8 is Antichrist. And Antichrist has a whole different relationship to the world but in particular to Israel. Now let's look at verse 23. It says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, latter period of these kingdoms. Now you know, Syria ceased to be Syria 2,000 years ago. Of course, in our day, <laughs> due to a French mandate in 1944, we saw Syria become a nation again. So now we have Syria and Egypt back on the world scene. And remember, they're the transgressors, because remember they marched back and forth over Israel? But notice it says, in the latter period, the last days when the transgressors have run their course, that is, when they have finished running across Israel, 
Now, when Israel was first a nation, you had some wars. The Six-Day War, if you remember, the Yom Kippur War and that kind of thing. But Jimmy Carter helped Egypt, this is interesting, sign a pact of, of peace between Sadat and Begin, which aligned Egypt in a whole new relationship with the state of Israel. If I read this correctly, there will come a time where both Egypt and Syria will be in kind of a non-aggression status with the state of Israel. The transgressors have run their course. There is, in a sense, a settleness. It might be tentative, but still there's a settleness there between those nations. When that occurs, it says, a king will arise. And I expect a king from Syria, where Antiochus was from, will arise and he will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. Those will be his two outstanding features. Now let's just pick that apart a bit. To be insolent. It, literally in Hebrew it means to be fierce in countenance. He will have a commanding presence to him. A commanding stature. He will cause people to sit up on the edge of their seat. Secondly, it says he will be skilled in intrigue, or as it says, skilled in riddles in Hebrew. What it means by that is that he will know how to say and do one thing and yet mean another thing. He will be the kind of guy who can spin these verbal webs. He can convince people that they're going to get something out of all this, and in reality, he's got a totally different agenda. And he's going to get something for himself or for somebody else. And they can give over to him their power. They can give over to him their protection, their goods and services, thinking this guy's for us. And yet the reality is he's both convincing and manipulative in the same breath. Not unlike some politicians. He will be the ultimate in that regard. Let's go on. It says in verse 24, given this characteristic, it says, and his power will be mighty. But then it says, but not by his own power. Now that's interesting. Not by his own power. What does it mean by that? Well, he will live off borrowed power. Now the question is, borrowed from whom? Well, turn back with me to Revelation 13 for just a moment. Keep your hand in Daniel 8. Turn back to Revelation 13. And we'll see. Now John, as I mentioned in a previous message, had a vision somewhat like Daniel's, with the same characters. Though some of his characters were a little bit different in look, they were the same in effect. And if you'll remember, I said that the horn of Daniel chapter 7 was this beast of, da of Revelation 13, starting in verse 1. Remember, he saw the beast. It had the same characteristics coming up out of the sea, the pool of humanity. It had the ten horns and the seven heads, just like in Daniel chapter 7. And then it goes on to describe that beast and all the power that he has. Well, I don't think Daniel chapter 8 refers to this beast, but I think it refers to a second beast that's found down in verse 11. Cast your eyes down there for a moment. See, he saw the beast coming up out of the sea, that first beast, that's humanity, that's the world. But then he sees this other beast coming up out of the earth, kind of like a resurrection. Totally different, two different places. A lot of theologians think earth is a reference to the Middle East area. But he comes up out of the earth, and notice he has two horns like a lamb. Now when you think of a lamb, who comes to mind? It kind of gives you a religious flavor, doesn't it? Jesus, I am the Lamb of God, the Lamb being slain. We won't turn over, but just a few chapters over in Revelation 19, this same beast is called a false 
prophet. Jesus was called a what? A prophet. But this guy's called a false prophet. He kind of has a religious flair to him. And his focus is towards the beautiful land, Israel. Well, let's go on and read because this guy has some other characteristics about him here. It says, it says, verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. If you notice, there's a marginal reading where it says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast by his authority. Now remember back in Daniel chapter 8, we said that this horn, this king, had power, but it was not his own. Guess where he gets his power? He gets his power because he's a, in partnership with this world ruler. And he derives his power from him. And he is an asset to the world ruler, and the world ruler is an asset to him. And we can see why in the verses that follow. Start in verse 13. Because look what he does. Or verse 12, excuse me, last part of verse 12. It says, he gets this authority because he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship. See, there's his religious feature to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Wow. He is one who kind of serves like a priest, a bridge builder. Just like Jesus was the prophet who built a bridge between man and God. This intriguing, sinister character builds a bridge between the people of earth and the nation of Israel in particular and another so-called God, this world ruler. Well, let's go on and read about himself. Remember, he said he was skilled in all kinds of things. He had all kinds of abilities. It says in verse 14 that he deceives those who dwell upon the earth. Oh, excuse me, verse 13 says he performs great signs. He's got all kinds of ability to perform signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives. He's got this skill, this cleverness about him. Those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform. Now who wants signs more than anybody else according to the Scripture? The Jews. Paul says Jews ask for signs. Boy, this guy can deliver. He delivers all kinds of miracles in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast might even speak. Now, I don't know exactly all that that means at that point, but it just seems the fact that he's referencing here the time when this false prophet will go into the holy place of Israel in this ultimate abomination of desolation and do away with the worship of the one true God and set up not the statue of Jupiter like Antiochus did, but the statue of this world ruler. And it will be a unique scientific statue because it will look as if it has life. And he will ask people to worship this beast. Now, many will believe, like it says, if you turn back to Daniel 8.25, it says, and through his shrewdness or his cleverness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. A lot of people, a lot of Jews will say, this is our God. But there will be an equal number probably who will resist that. You know, Jews, they'll have a hard time with this. And some will, will resist and back in Revelation 13, it also says, after it says the beast comes to life, the last phrase says that this, this uh, 
false prophet will cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. There'll be a lot of death and a lot of bloodshed at this point in time of the nation of Israel. We read about it last week in Daniel chapter 9 when after three and a half years of this pact between Israel and this world ruler, the sacrifices are stopped and people are told that they must turn their attention to this world ruler and worship him. And they will refuse. And bloodshed and terror and horror will break forth, just like it says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, when it says, the transgression that causes horror will break forth. And that transgression will occur until the end of time when this false prophet and this world ruler and all their minions are confronted by the intervention of Jesus Christ. This is a fantastic and amazing future world figure. But if I may, in the final few moments, I want him, because now we've just focused on him, now I want to drop him into the context of all that I've said over these past months concerning the prophetic panorama. Here's how I think it will probably fall into place. First, there will be a confederation of ten nations that will loosely align themselves with one another. Nations and people that once comprised the old Roman Empire. It'll be ten nations, ten leaders. They'll come together. Their purpose in come together is economic and mutually beneficial uh, enhancement. And they'll come together to form and they'll become the greatest empire on earth. But in time, there'll be a coup. And as I said, this coup, this federation will suffer a coup in which one will extract three of these leaders in order to gain the upper hand on the other seven. And when he does so, the confederation will collapse into a dictatorship. And this charismatic world figure will then ascend to the throne to lead this great empire that will literally dominate the whole earth. That's what we learned about in Daniel's chapter 2 and 7. Then this sinister world leader, I believe, will form a close partnership with this other sinister figure that we have just called Antichrist. I think the reason he does that so is because this is a religious figure. He's related to the Middle East. Part of the old Roman Empire covered the Middle East. He'll want to bring them into his monarchy, so to speak. So he'll be working to that end. Israel, on the other hand, finding itself more and more isolated feeling the need for protection and peace, will instead want to enter into this contractual arrangement in order to protect its identity and yet be under the umbrella of protection of this great world ruler. So they'll form a covenant together and the person who will be joining their hands, remember when Jimmy Carter stood between Sadat and Begin? The person joining their hands, unknown to them, will be Antichrist. And he'll bring them into this relationship. But then after three and a half years of peace, when Israel is at ease, thinking they're under all this protection, then another coup of sorts will take place. And this Antichrist will be instructed to go in and bring Israel not only under the control of this world ruler, but to worship him like the rest of the world is being asked to do. And many in Israel, as I said, will refuse. And there will be a great desolation and desecration that will take place as this image is erected. And some will worship the beast voluntarily. Some will flee to the mountains because they know Matthew chapter 24 and Jesus' words. Some will suffer and die under economic boycott where their goods and services are withheld because they won't worship the beast. Some will be put into mock trials and executed for treason. 
And then after a gruesome reign of terror for three and a half years, according to Daniel, the realm and the power of this world ruler will be broken. Antichrist will be overthrown, as it says in Daniel chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 25. Right at the very end, it says, but he will be broken without human agency. If you look at uh, Revelation 19, 19 and 20, you see the coming of Christ and with the, the descent of Christ to claim His earth for His own. The first two people He addresses, as it says in Revelation 19, is the beast, the world ruler, and His false prophet. And He destroys them both. And then the end will come. And we'll talk about that end in the next message. Does that scare you? <laughs> you know, uh, when I look at those things and when I think about those thoughts and I think about that bloodshed, I just wish there was another way. And I think of all that and, and I'm sure Daniel, when he was specifically thinking about his people, that that was just overwhelming to him, that there would be that kind of holocaust. Fact is, it says in verse 27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. That's the kind of impact this vision, this graphic vision, had upon his life. And maybe for some of you, that's been true as we've talked about these things and talked about the possibility of the church going through that, that tribulation. But I want you to notice something. And here's the encouragement to all of this message. I want you to look right at the very end. He was sick, yes. But there came a place after he kind of worked it through. And, and this is the key line. It says that Daniel got up after a period of time, and carried on the king's business. May I play with that phrase for just a moment? Because <laughs> it's a great phrase that he carried on the king's business. You know, some people, when they get into prophecy, they get so caught up with it that all they want to do is study prophecy and try to figure out when the end's coming. There are other people that look at this stuff and it just paralyzes them in fear. And they don't want to look at it anymore. They don't want to know the end's going to come like that. See? But both of those are irresponsible responses. Daniel's response is the right response. See, after Daniel took all that in, and even though it was horrible how it was going to end, he also knows what ends it and what's to come after that, which we'll talk about. And so he's encouraged. But his response is the purpose of all prophecy. Because after you've considered it all, what you're to do is to walk out of here and carry on the king's business. That's the purpose of prophecy. Now, what is the king's business? Well, I wish I could just list all day for you the numerous examples of the king's business that I see go on every week in this church. But let me just cite a few of them for you. They're not glamorous per se, but they are the king's business because we know how it's going to end. We know who's going to end it. We know the kingdom to follow. And if we know all that, certainly it should cause us to pull back to the present, not stay in the future, but back to the present and be responsible by the way we conduct our lives. That's what many of you all do. I think of the group just next week who are going to be packing their bags, taking their vacation, their free time, leaving their jobs like Dathan Gaskell and Wade Scott and Elizabeth White, people like that, and others. And they're going to pack their bags and they're going to fly to Columbia, South America. And they're going to go out into a desert region and they're going to spend the next two weeks working with the Guajira Indians, building schools, ministering the Word, being with people unlike themselves. There's no coercion there. It just smacks 
of the king's business, doesn't it? Then I think of others like uh, Jim and Debbie Rudolph uh, who have dedicated themselves to that sixth grade class that Dennis Rainey teaches. You know, we have 75 and plus sixth graders gathered down in that room right below us right now. And they don't know who they are and their hormones are going everywhere and they're about to get into junior high. And Jim and Debbie Rudolph came together and on their own formed a common cause group that will specifically for a year minister to those sixth graders on their time. And think about them all year long. It's not glamorous, but it is the king's business. And they're involved in it. Then I think of the Bethany Fellowship, a benefit that's coming up, you know, for the adoption agency that this church, this church was in large part responsible for founding. And all the members like Jimmy Alessi, Bob Snyder, and others who are feverishly involved in helping put on that benefit to raise money so that women who'd have no alternative, who are in desperate situations with an unwanted pregnancy, can look to a godly alternative and give their child to some couple who wants to raise it with love and attention and concern. They don't get paid for it, but it is the king's business. I think about Judy Ligon and some others who've gone and talked with some of the editors of a newspaper called Spectrum and kind of interacted with them about the propriety of those advertisements, those 1-900 sex talk numbers. You know, it takes courage to do that. That's not something that you just kind of want to do. <laughs> but it's something that needs to be done in an unrighteous society that's going to hell. And yet they do it because they want to do it. They do it because it's the king's business. You know, uh, the young lady who prayed just a few moments ago in our service, Robin Howell, wrote me a, a note this week. And it was very encouraging to me because there are many people like this that take their, their evenings and their weekends to sit down with somebody they don't know or maybe do know or work with and try to help them understand, really understand the Christian faith and to quit reacting to all those caricatures of the Christian faith that they see on TV at times or hear about in the newspaper, but to really get away from those figures and come and confront the living Christ. That's what she did. In fact, she wrote me this note that said, I just wanted to drop you a note to thank you for the discipleship tool you provided with the one-to-one. -one. I was taken through by a friend a year ago. Bless that friend. King's business. I have since taken two others through. I'm starting with the third next week. It has really helped me to get grounded in my faith. It's provided a great opportunity for questions and discussions about the Lord for those who are searching. She'll not get one cent for doing that. In fact, if she hadn't written me that note, no one would even know except those three figures that she spends time with. But you know what that's called? That's called the king's business. And I could list on and on hundreds of you all who knew to be complimented, hugged, written a note, and all kinds of other things because you take your time, you take your effort, you give away your precious moments to do the king's business. And why? Because you can look into the future. And you can know that everything else is gone. But not the king's business. Because when the king comes, he sets up the company. And the company will last forever. If you pulled out your day timer, you pulled out your calendar and just looked at it, perused it for a month, do you see anywhere on there the king's business? 
anything that, that kind of has a royal accent to it, anything that has the scent of heaven rather than earth, if you do, welcome to the king's company. It's a good place to be because that's the only company that's going to last. The only one that's going to last after the great collapse of everything else. May I encourage you all that it will be a grand moment when the king comes. Because when the king comes, I plan on being there holding up my calendar and daytimer. <laughs> and, say, and saying to him, I've been doing business. Okay? And I hope you'll be doing business this week. Let's pray together. Lord, these are sobering truths. In many places in Daniel, after a revelation like that is given, the angel will say, these statements are true and trustworthy. It takes faith to believe this. It took faith for Daniel to believe that there would be a Greek empire or that there would be an abominator like Antiochus, but he believed. It took faith for those in a hundred B.C. or 200 B.C. to believe that there would be a personal Messiah. One who would come and atone for their sin. It takes faith today to believe that He's coming again. But He is. And Lord, knowing that, we pledge our lives afresh to You. On Christmas, Jews will say, Happy Dedication. And they will think about their temple that stood back in 164 B.C. But here this morning, in 1990 A.D., we would say, happy dedication. And we would look to ourselves, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and offer it up to You for acceptable service. May You be pleased with our lifestyle this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.